0: Hello, and welcome to Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people that teach it. I am Dr. Joe Stultz. In this episode, I sit down with Robert Paulette, professor of history at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. There are still tickets available to our October 25th forward evening book talk featuring author Peter Stark, who will be discussing his new book, Young Washington, How Wilderness and War Forged America's Founding Father. And also, if you are not already following us on social media, please do so at Facebook.com slash Library, or on Twitter and Instagram at Books. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, how have you been enjoying your fellowship? You've been here, what, three months
1: now? It's three months or two and a half anyway. Yeah. So close enough. Uh, it's been amazing. It's been a very singular experience to kind of live in such a... Cloistered community of scholars for such an intense period of time, but it's been amazing for that. But you've been here sort of at uh, high point. How many of you had passed through while you were here? Oh, I was counting it the other day. It's been see. I started with four, then they all left, and I think three more came. And so I think it's somewhere around seven or eight historians of early America that I've been like living and working with twenty four hours a day for three months. so closer not too monastic though I hope not too monastic well I mean <laughs> certainly no vow of silence mon- mon- monks, like yeah, monks like wine yeah monks like wine but no vows of silence yeah, yeah.
0: And, well, what uh, what have you been uh, working on previously prior to coming here
1: so uh, my work started with ideas of landscape and mapping. Um, and I did it within the context of the deerskin trade, the Anglo-Indian deerskin trade in the southeast. So, but my work there was more about ideas of empire and sort of visions of empire and how they adapted themselves within this very unique context mm-hmm. um, in the British world. And so that's always been kind of the work I've liked doing, the ones where you can kind of see systems of thought in various places. So... Um, that's the basic arc, you know. My book, my first book, was about that, and it's kind of how it led me into this topic.
0: What uh, people really like maps. Mm-hmm. I can tell you from <laughs> managing our library social media page and our website and stuff. People love maps. Yeah, and clearly you had you're okay with maps and like maps. What 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 about uh when you were sort of trying to think through though, like in grad school what you wanted to work on like what drew you to maps other than maps are awesome.
1: Well, maps are awesome. Right? It was it was one of those moments like the light bulb goes off moments and it was just I was in a class in graduate school and it was a grad seminar but part of the component was sitting in with the professor as he taught his undergraduate class and he just did this unit on Maps, and he just popped one up. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was one of the early maps of the Roanoke colony. And he explained how they put you know, the flag of England on here as a way of claiming territory. And I had never really thought of maps as active mm-hmm. in that way. Um, that they, they had a role to play in shaping how people think. You know, I just, used, at mm-hmm. that point, I used them to get from place to place. Yeah. And they were a useful tool. Uh, but never thought about how they were imprinting themselves on my brain. As you don't I think I of doing. Google Maps
0: as too political.
1: Right. Yeah. No, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and so from that moment, it's like, wait, oh, we can do this. And so I started this project that became my dissertation. And I can't even remember how I did it. I think it was just I, uh, uh, I got a fellowship at the Newberry because I wanted to see, like, what the maps of the deerskin trade were like or something mm-hmm. like that. And they had some there. And then it was, like, so the interest grew, and then, you know, they brought it the first. And these 18th century maps, if you haven't seen them, right, they're massive. They're, like, five feet by eight feet. And the first time one of these things lands on the table, you just see so much, right? Mm-hmm. And you see, again, whole systems of thought and attitudes and beliefs just written across the entire page. And, like, just that ability to kind of, like, get up and walk around and, like, engage with this massive thing it was awesome. <laughs> and so I just... Basically, decide, okay, so now the project is about mapping. And mm-hmm. that sort of grew from there.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think maps in, in, in some ways are kind of like, or, or a lot of these older maps, right, that we see in textbooks and stuff. Um, to your point of it just being so big, it's, it's kind of like a lot of the famous pieces of art that we also see in textbooks. Like, I don't right. you know, think we're, we're all familiar with these images now, but you don't realize just how big and therefore expensive yeah. and, and it, you know, and obviously they're maps so they're important, but um yeah, it just means sort of how big and yeah. like the, just the sheer size of these things yeah um and and, and i i i, I uh, we we've never actually had the chance to talk about this but uh well, you've been here for three months um but uh, my first job out of grad school was actually working up at uh West Point mm-hmm. uh working on a t- uh, military history textbook project mm-hmm. for them, and one of the things um you know, the army likes maps, right? Uh, it's important for army officers to be able to read maps. (laughs) Right. Uh, and so maps were a big part of this textbook project. And that was sort of my first big introduction into the politics Mm -hmm. of mapping. Um, because even when we were doing some, you know, you know, modern creations, but of maps of historical time periods, uh, issues of phrasing would come up of how we were going to title certain things uh, based on, like, what, you know, a current NATO member mm-hmm, might mm-hmm. prefer to see something right. um, done. And, you know, and that only got more and more complicated as, you know, the maps got more and more recent, which was uh, sort of eye-opening for me. So, I mean, do you have, uh, have you found any experiences of that, though, in, in 18th century mapping of, um, like, how how, sort of, how did the politics in maps Fit in. you mentioned about like the Roanoke colony, like the English sort of making sure they
1: put their flag on there to be like, no, no, this is ours. Um, but what else? Well, in the 18th century, which is what I study on, I mean it's the maps are not shy about their political agendas. Mm-hmm. In fact, some of them are really quite overt and especially in North America when you have Britain and France and Spain um, trying to state claims on overlapping mm-hmm. territory that you have these these map wars and, and they're you know they're made by well, there's there no, really aren't a whole lot of professional map makers, right? They're mostly print yeah. makers. Uh, so they're used to printing books and printing broadsides and printing pamphlets. And they see maps as part of this kind of like rhetorical move. Not, you know, That idea that the map is an objective representation of reality hasn't really set in yet. That comes later. So you just see these, in some cases, just quite hilarious maps Um there's a map maker in who's op, operating in Britain named Herman Mall, and he makes some of these big wall maps. And he, uh, I think he was originally Dutch, but immigrated to Britain um, just to like meet demand for map making. And he sees some maps of France that are some French maps of North America that claim the you know, large parts of the East Coast or what have you. And he so he prints these. These screens. Right? Look at what France is claiming. We have mm-hmm. to. We have to assert ourselves. We have to. Like they're trying to wipe our colonies off the face. Of the, and like how he draws the lines on the map. Do that. And this is just running throughout the 18th century. And so it's, the 18th century is nice for that because it's this funny transition between the techniques of map making, moving towards trying to find a more credible, objective kind of. For lack of a better word, science. Even mm-hmm. though they didn't use that word of mapping and cartography, but then still using them for these very nakedly political, almost propagandistic um, purposes, which makes them just fantastic. these sort of like tensions within the documents, and you know that this is all happening at a scale of nine feet by nine yeah. feet, <laughs> right? Extra exciting.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mean, you still I mean see. Some of this coming up uh, well for a lot of different reasons it comes up today, but like one of the one of the ones that pops in my head that's maybe sort of a more benign example. but um you know it's the issue of how to depict a world map and which projection to use of a world map because if you do it from the equator, it shrinks down something like the size of Africa, right. And so all of a sudden it it and it also increases the size of Europe, which. Mm-hmm isn't necessarily being done for a political reason. But to your point, like it totally changes you, the perception of how – it can change the perception of how you think of these things. So I just find it fascinating that that was, uh, you know, going on in the 18th century as well, even though then it's probably a little more, as you put it, <laughs> ex-
1: explicit. Well, and it's – you see even within British mapping, different techniques, um, th- that kind of idea, uh, one of the biggest what, – what do you do with information about Indians? Mm-hmm. Because there are certain colonies, like Pennsylvania, whose claims, their land claims, are based upon their trade with Indians. So they had these very detailed maps of roadways and mm-hmm. Indian villages. But then a place like Virginia, which is basing its land claims on <laughs> no one being there, like a yeah. sort of a vacuum domicilium, yeah. they kind of erase a lot of that information. Even though they're all – these map aren't talking to each other, but like what you leave in and what you leave out, right? That's the politics of the map.
0: Um, well, that's that yeah. actually going to be one of my questions is do you think that uh, it, it sort of helped – or helped, but then also uh, is d- d- causes maybe even to some extent uh, helps cause uh, sort of this notion of the American West is sort of this virgin land is is on a lot of these maps when you know European policymakers are looking on it. Well, there's just nothing on the map, so it's easy to think about that there's no one there.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's what's interesting is. That's not universal, mm-hmm. right? That's a political choice some yeah, people yeah, yeah. make. Um, for some people, their political agenda is, I mean, usually it's to exploit the Indians in one way or another, but to exploit them in a different way, but to make their claims through the Indians. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some, their political agenda is to downplay an Indian presence because they don't have those yeah. claims. So even within sort of the British world, right, it's... It's the very particular agenda of that map maker and wherever they're coming from. It's not just everyone looks to the West as sort of a vacuum dome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, that's true throughout American history, right? It's mm-hmm. uh, even in the height of Manifest Destiny, even though that idea of sort of the empty West becomes such a core part of American myth-making in the 19th century, you still have lots of people, you know— Claiming and competing over trade networks in the West, and you know, making their claims to authority by their connections with Indians. So it's always the persons, the persons of political agenda behind the map mm-hmm. more than the states or the nations, because nations obviously are big and diverse and, yeah. and have different agendas.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, what uh, what are some other examples uh, you found in your your work of uh, sort of political usage of maps?
1: The way in which users. Right, Read maps and mm-hmm. take maps. Um, I mean, now I'm, having, I'm trying to remember what I wrote years and years ago <laughs> here because uh, I wasn't prepared for this. Um, but part of it is – well, I mean, for, for these Indian traders, for example, um, they use maps to show how much they know about Indians mm. and – uh, a lot of the maps we have for the 18th century southeast, the information for the interior comes from these traders, and so the way they recount landscape, the way mm-hmm. they talk about landscape, they d- they didn't do surveys, but, but they talked about I follow this road to this village, and the fact that they know all of these paths and all of these networks. That's how they claim authority, and so they make maps very clearly. And so that's
0: them trying to get a government contract to tribute these, or it,
1: well, it's yeah, Um it's them trying to, yeah. But in some cases, get trading rights. More often, it's a way of arguing against regulation of their trade um, to prevent increased colonial or royal oversight of uh, their trade, saying, look, we know best. Look how much we know. It's kind of always saying, look how little you know. Mm -hmm. Trust us to manage these affairs. Um, So, I mean, basically, any any political division um, you find in early America probably has a mapping component because when so much of it, so much of your politics is trying to claim a space in this really uncertain realm of authority, which is Mm -hmm. the British Empire, where no one's really totally sure who's in charge of what at any given moment, the maps become a way of doing this, right? They become this rhetorical tool and they have that kind of, they're developing this power because everyone knows they're political, but everyone kind of accepts them as sort of an emerging view of how things really are. And so if you can manipulate your map, it gives you a certain kind of rhetorical credibility.
0: No, uh, And one of the things that's just uh, occurred to me and, the, and for our listeners that are probably way smarter than me, um, you know, this is – i I, th- I think, you know – we live in a, in a 21st century era where you can pull up, you know, your smartphone mm-hmm. and find a map to pretty much everything, right? And we live in an era where satellite imagery has existed for, mm-hmm. I mean, now generations. Right. Um, but you're writing about an era when they, they – w- what you're writing about, they haven't even invented balloon flight to be able <laughs> right. to just, like – right? The only way you could really get, like, a good top-down on, view on something <laughs> was to find – a big mountain, um, that it strikes me that, you know, mapping is therefore that much more important because like you said, they're not really sure about, um, who controls what, but you know, they're not even really sure what is what, right. And what is where, and where is where exist. Um, and one of the maps, uh, I, I really enjoyed when you, you did your sort of introductory talk when you first got here. Um, was uh, a a map that included the Florida panhandle Mm -hmm. where it looks like uh, somebody was a little drunk when they were docking their cruise ship down Mm -hmm. in Miami and just, like, cracked the panhandle wide open. Uh, And we could actually... uh, We'll see about putting an image of that one on Mm -hmm. this episode page so everyone can see what I'm talking about. But could you describe um, what Florida looks like in that map and why Florida is so jacked up?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, Florida is... Uh, well, it, it's an example of this, right? How the technology can't create, well, no map would create a perfect image of the Earth, mm-hmm. right? Even a satellite image from you know eighty miles above the Earth's surface. Yes, that's right. Those are landforms, and consistently they're the same shape. So those, mm-hmm. but but we don't we we don't experience those, right? Mm-hmm. So those maps don't actually intersect with how we see the world, right? They're they're how a satellite sees the world, and very few of us are orbiting Earth. Um, so it is true it, that very mm, few
0: humans are satellites. Yeah, yes. so,
1: so every map, right, is, is an in, imperfect picture in that mm-hmm. way. So even the better technology that allows us to more accurately measure landforms doesn't necessarily give us a more consistent idea of what the map should be. Um, you know, as a side note to that, right, just look at all the ways that people try to create an election map, right, to yeah. accurately describe politics, you know, especially in the red state, blue state era – where you have all these different cartograms, and all these advice mm-hmm. to like, try and create, like, what does America look like? What do the thoughts of Americans look like? You've got all your weird purple and blue and red <laughs> splotch maps. So that's just, that's just one of the consistent right, uh, aspects that, as maps come into being and have this power to project reality, people try yeah, to manipulate yeah. them. So, so, but Florida, um, I mean, Florida was hard to map because Florida, just in the same way that Lake Michigan was consistently hard to map because it runs so north-south and it's so mm-hmm. relatively narrow in an era where you can't accurately measure longitude, which you couldn't until about the 1750s, 1760s with Harrison's uh, chronometer, this Mm -hmm. navigational tool, this basically fancy clock. It was really hard to tell, like, where you were east-west. And with Florida, if you're trying to map it, even if you're a few miles east-west and the observations don't match up, the lines don't make any sense. So map just threw up their hands. I mean, there are maps from the same year in which Florida appears as a series of islands, which is probably based on, you know, it's a lot of wetlands, especially in the southern peninsula, but probably just, you know, there's a lot of reports. There's all these keys and there are all these islets around here, uh, around Florida. Um, sometimes it's just this little narrow triangle. They know it's a <coughs> peninsula. They know what shape it is. Sometimes it looks kind of like we think it should. Uh, so Florida's hard to map, Um, And when Britain takes Florida at the end of the Seven Years' War in 1763, they win the war against France and Spain. And as part of that, they get claims to Florida, which had been Spanish for 200 years at that point. But Britain doesn't actually know what Florida looks like because none of the maps agree on what it looks like. And so the printmakers of London want to put these maps out – to like show what do we have won, but mm-hmm. they, don't, they don't know what Florida looks like, so they're just mm-hmm. guessing. Yeah, so the map that I showed is one such map, and it's actually it's a it was partly political, the decision that the map maker um, Thomas Jeffries. Part of it was he didn't actually know the shape of the peninsula, but part of it was there was this propaganda war that Florida was sort of a wasteland, and. Part of the mapping of Florida, the people that leaned towards islands were those that were unsure if this was actually valuable territory or not mm-hmm. or whether it could ever be farmed. And so the decision to show it as a series of islands reflects that kind of cultural sense of Florida as kind of a wasteland. Um, I don't know where anyone would ever get the idea that Florida <laughs> is a wasteland. <laughs> well, it's right, the things that we value for, yeah. <laughs> Right now, sorry to all of our
0: listeners in Florida. <laughs> well, I mean, it's well, actually
1: right. It's the the beautiful sandy beaches, right? The yeah. reasons anyone goes to Florida in the 18th century that was they they called it a desert. Right? Yeah. that it was hot and sandy and it was sunny and nothing would ever grow there. Just uh, stop putting their swim trunks on, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, you know, when I, when, when the swim trunks were wool, I guess, yeah. that was less, of, less appealing. You yeah, you want to uh, do that? Yeah, but that's that's a case, right? That the map maker decided I'm going to make Florida look like make it look like I think it should be mm-hmm. because I have no way of knowing what it is right the, the florida we deserve not the florida <laughs> right um, yeah i
0: just i just love this idea of george the at windsor castle like show me florida and they're like mm, we don't really know yeah we don't. Uh, now speaking of windsor castle yes. you were uh one of the georgian uh paper fellows yes uh so tell us about that what is what is that like working in a castle <laughs> uh because we're Americans, you know. Yeah, I know. Castles are still very romantic they,
1: It's a very romantic castle, yeah. right? And it was, I didn't realize there, right, that this perfect romantic castle looks that way because it was mostly redone in the 19th century. <laughs> like, like Prince Albert, like, took a bunch of myself. and said, let's, let's make a romantic-looking castle. Because at that point, had sort of like, yeah. there are buildings attached to it, and it's, like, tumbling down. Was, like, let's make it look like a picture book. And he did. And mm-hmm. that's why it looks so picture book. Um, but it's amazing, right? It's this experience of... You know, the Royal Archive, it's it's weird, you know, because the security is super tight. Because this is, these, you know, these papers are still property of the Queen. Yeah. Is it still, that's still royal residence on occasion, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep, very much so. Did uh, you meet the Corkies? No. No, never mind. <laughs> I did not get a chance to meet the Corkies. I didn't, I didn't get a chance to meet any royal people at all. It was, um, But, so yeah, they... Uh, so, this experience, right, of mm-hmm. walking up into this castle, and it is, like, it's the high point, you know, for miles and miles around, uh, and it is, it's the Windsor Castle you see on television. So, there is this point where uh, I, was, I was there at the exact same time as another one of the fellows that just, you know, this is fancy stuff. <laughs> this <laughs> is not, you know, your usual archive trip, even if you're looking at, like, the papers of elite people, like, you're in university archives, or you're in, you know, wonderful libraries, beautiful facilities, um, but usually in the basement, right, <laughs> or, or in some back room. But also um, the extra benefit was they were renovating the archive room while we were there. So for a few weeks, I got to work in the Royal Library, like the Royal Family's private library. Hmm. So it's just incru- – so like, you know, there were points where like I just needed a re- like a reference book off the – Shelf, and so I just grabbed. A, you know, I didn't grab. The librarians helped <laughs> You <me>. asked, politely. <laughs> I asked yeah. politely, and the library staff uh, allowed me to carefully remove a book <laughs> from the shelf. And it's just a published volume, but like there's this note: like this was George the Sixth personal <laughs> copy of this volume that I'm reading here. And then, you know, the part of the Georgian Papers program is sort of scholarly discovery, right? They want mm-hmm. us to kind of go through these papers that have not been properly cataloged. They've been known and they've been available, but they haven't been really well cataloged. There was, they were going to do it in 1939, and then it, something happened was, in yeah, British history, was, I can't remember yeah. what, um, that they did, just didn't get to it. Um, so just to get these boxes of stuff. And, you know, scholars have looked through these, but we still, like, you have, they took most of that information with them. So yeah. everything was new, just thousands of documents. And so working in this space... You know, this royal library, which is built out of, like, Queen Catherine's bedchamber and Elizabeth the I's walking gallery. So, like, you're just surrounded by history. Like, literally, like, these figures of history move through these spaces. And you're getting, like, George III's papers. You can still smell the smoke off the fire in which he's writing. It's just like, okay, this is... I'm about to pass out <laughs> from, like, the historic weight of history around mm-hmm. me right You got now. a history high. <laughs> I really <laughs> had a history high. Um, and also, like, okay, so this is as good as this is ever gonna get, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> like I've got four weeks here. I'm at the top of the round tower, or I'm in the library, depending on where I am. This wonderful archive staff, tremendous archive staff, is bringing these boxes of just treasures, basically, um, historian's treasures, right? Which is just old paper, but still <laughs> treasures. Uh, information I've never seen, mm-hmm. windows in people's personality that you haven't seen, and then I get to like leave i'm still leave the castle and come back the next day it's really kind of incredible
0: well and then you got to come to mount vernon though
1: so well right uh, which is right, which is also not is a good, castle not a castle but mm-hmm. it's as, right the fact that i have this uh it's as good as it's going to get in a different way right <laughs> um that obviously you don't have a lot of george the Third vapors here um, Yeah, he didn't visit he didn't okay. visit no nah, right. yeah mm-hmm. for whatever reason mm-hmm. um but right the opposite I have all of these historians now right because you know your average fellowship it's just you Yeah, yeah. and you go and you go into the archive you learn your stuff you go home you eat your sad dinner and you come back (laughs) the next day so even if you're in a castle that's kind of the rhythm but here where you know the task is I go up I wake up in the morning I go into the kitchen and there's three experts in early America right there and then I go into the office right and it's those same three experts plus the library staff so it's just all of these human beings this human knowledge and to talk about things. So, you know, I was writing this summer, so I, I had a brainstorm, and the ideas seemed kind of crazy, which it often does when I'm writing. I could go into the kitchen. I have two, mm-hmm. like, nationally known scholars of early American history. Like, do these ideas make sense? And I can sort of run them, you know, yeah. I can't do that at home. Um, no, my family is brilliant. My four-year-old son is right, wonderful, but uh, he's not so good on 18th yeah, century just, politics.
0: Yeah, he's just not, not read up on the historiography
1: yet. We're so worried about him, <laughs> right? We figured, like, he should have at least cracked open, like, at least one volume of Bernard Balin or somewhere at this point. start with, like, some nice Burke or something. <laughs> right? a at least of yeah. David McCullough, right? Yeah, no, he yeah should, right. At this point, he should be reading David McCullough. Oh, what's he doing with his life? I know, right? Um, yeah, and then we yeah, had to have that, right, and to be able to, like, just have that kind of expertise. constantly, I sat down on a couch, right, um, with James Vaughan, who was here in June, right, and he's a he's a British political he's a historian mm-hmm. of British politics uh, at UT Austin. And you know, I was starting this project on George III, and I don't really know the history of British politics very well, but I could just sit down with James and in two hours, right, learn from him what it would take me months to do right, yeah. just by myself right and like that's that's a rare and special thing that happens here so I mean
0: that's great but yeah. it doesn't it doesn't smell like Elizabeth <laughs> the first fireplace so we'll, yeah. maybe we'll maybe we'll work <laughs> on like uh, some air freshener or something
1: I, we can use but then at the end of it all I can walk up and I can sit on the piazza, and I can be where Washington saw his view, right? Yeah, now you're just sucking up. No, I'm not (laughs) sucking up, man. I'm telling you, it was a good summer. It was a good summer. Yeah, because when were you in – when were you at uh, England? When were you – When was I there? Yeah. So I was there mid-November to mid-December. Okay, yeah. Well, at least you came to
0: Virginia for the the summer. Yeah, Yeah.
1: the
0: hottest part. You you should probably flip those – those dates
1: um,
0: well what uh, you know what are you what are you working on now what's the the next project going to be that our uh, readers that have already anxiously uh, and in a fervor gone to Amazon and purchased your current book or actually uh, they should go to University of Georgia Press's website yes and purchase it directly University of Georgia Press would mm-hmm. like me to, to say <laughs> that part Uh but what uh, what's the next what's the next thing?
1: So I mean, the, right? It's the project that we've kind of been hinting at um, so far. It's the one related to George the Third, and what it is is his vision of America when he first comes to the throne um, between seventeen sixty 1760 and seventeen sixty four. Can you do the title? What is Florida? Uh, so it's. <laughs> no what is florida Well, Florida's only part of it this point, right yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the project grew out of another project i'm doing on the surveying of florida um, so it grew out of florida it that's, grew out of florida right yeah it came yeah, out of, grew out of florida very yeah very swampy it's probably and, another boat you know, <laughs> right? yeah. anyway. it, it came from florida <laughs> um, yeah so i'm looking at the vision he's bringing to the throne when he first comes because he's you know he's only 22 when mm-hmm. he comes to the throne
0: and he's far more interested in sort of overseas Everything than George II, right? Am I remembering that actually correctly? the opposite,
1: really? Because um, okay. because well, I mean, how interested George II wasn't anything is is yeah, up for that's, debate. That's right, yeah. um, which is typically like the, the king's role, right? The yeah, king yeah. is sort of he's above above it all. Yeah. Um, which is why George III is fascinating because he takes a much more active role mm-hmm. in shaping policy than. Previous but yeah, George II, he was very interested in Europe and the continental affairs of Europe because, you know, he was German, yeah. right? And so anything that um, affected Hanover, where he was yeah. from, he was very tied to. George III comes in uh, out of an era of opposition, an idea of opposition, that Britain is too involved in the continent of Europe. is too tied to European affairs. So there's a certain kind of like... Britain first strategy. Yeah, very much, right? It's yeah. a very isolationist, very exceptionalist kind of mm-hmm. language that Britain is special and has become corrupt by... Spending too much time in Europe, right? All oh, the, the horrible contacts with the <laughs> French and uh, right, French. <laughs> the French. Yeah. Um, the delicious food, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, so, so George comes through with an idea of how to correct this, how to be George less. III. George, yeah. sorry, yeah, George the yeah. comes in with this idea of separating, withdrawing from Europe, and kind of yeah, Britain first, <laughs> and very much Britain first, mm-hmm. right? Of kind of healing the divisions between Scotland and England and sort of unifying the British Isle um, first. But he comes to the throne in 1760 in the middle of this war and all the peace terms, all the treaty terms are happening in America Mm -hmm. so that he – and especially um, he and his chief advisor, uh, the Earl of Butte, um, who was a Scottish nobleman who was – he had been George III's tutor. He came in. He was in George's cabinet. He was sort of his chief advisor in these early years. The two of them suddenly realize they have to figure out how America fits into – this idea for a unified Britain that they've been cooking up for the past 10 years, and that's where they start coming up with grand schemes, mm-hmm. like drawing big boundary lines down the Appalachian Mountains. Florida looks like a good idea from this perspective because it might not be worth anything, but it it makes the America complete, right? It makes it whole. It makes it unified. There's not there's no longer Spanish enclaves, mm-hmm. combined with taking Canada from the French, which also happens at the end of that war. Uh, so we can do in America what we want to do in Britain and that how we reform America and how we want to reform Britain, those things will work together. So that's, that's the project I'm working on right now and the one that brought me here. Nice. Well,
0: we, uh, we look forward to, uh, to that book and when it comes out, maybe we will have you uh, back on have – you, have you, you don't have – uh... Contract or anything yet? Do you? Remember?
1: No, it's brand new, right? So, uh, well, so, uh, so, all the
0: all the acquisitions editors listen to the show.
1: Give me, give me are. a call, right? all <laughs> <Yeah>, right <laughs> Well, Mount thank- Vernon can put you in touch. <laughs> yeah, we,
0: we, you know, we're you were, we're basically your publicist now, so that's fine.
1: The, I'm learning that. Yeah. yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on the show, and uh, yeah, this was this was great.
1: Okay. Well, thanks for having me. This was fun.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.